Churchpreneurs Podcast. My name is Richard Moore. I'm your host and informant for everything church, theology, and faith-related. Churchpreneurs' vision is to accelerate the church in mission, vision, and effectiveness and fulfilling the Great Commission in our communities. Churchpreneurs hopes to embolden people to fulfill the Great Commission beyond their own borders into the rest of the world within this generation. In this podcast, I talk about everything that is moving me in relation to church, theology, and hopefully to empower you in your ministry, Bible study, theological understanding, and most importantly, your personal growth in Christ. Today, I'm continuing uh, my series on rediscovering Bethel. So the uh, Bethel folks uh, put out a series of six full-length, almost two-hour podcasts, rediscovering what Bethel believes, thinks, um, covering all sorts of topics they covered. And I'm going to do a deep, deep dive uh, in this episode on their fourth episodes. I'm trying to do as well in six episodes it's a lot of material, so if you can hang with me and you're interested, stick with me. I will take a deep dive and, and, and cover all the material that they covered in their episodes. So this episode, in this episode, I'm covering uh, Rediscovering Bethel, episode number four with Chris Valatun and Dan Verley. Um, and in that episode, they cover the topics, the topics are the title of their uh, episode is called The Church, Ministry, and the New Apostolic Reformation. So that's the title of their episode at the one fifteen minute mark. Let's just dive right in. The one fifteen minute mark, Chris Valentin says that Churchill, Winston Churchill, I presume, said sometimes, if you stop for every barking dog, you never reach your destiny. That's right off of the one fifteen minute mark. And I thought, I thought, I cannot imagine that Churchill said that. I could stand to be corrected. <laughs> but in this movement, the NAR, they insert their own NAR terminology into quotes from famous people to substantiate their own claims of their movement. The word destiny, I, I, I almost can hardly believe that Winston Churchill ever said that word. I'm just what my destiny, you know. Think about it. Actually, if you stop for every dark barking dog, you will never reach your destiny. I think Winston Churchill did say something to that effect, meaning don't um, don't stop for every critique or people who bark you know bark at you about something. Um, but to, that he, that you'll never reach your destiny. I don't think Winston Churchill said that. I could be mis- I could stand corrected. Please correct me in the comments. I'd love to see that quote. And if you quote him. If you give me that quote in the comments, give me a source. I don't want to be uh, quoted something from Conjecture or wherever or Facebook or something like that. Give me the source where he said it, where it's written. Um, So destiny is a big, big theological point in the movement. I knew a guy about 20 years ago who got sucked up in this movement uh, with Morningstar, um, Rick Joyner's ministry. He started using the word destiny all the time. And so I cannot truly believe that Winston Churchill said that statement. Uh, I'm beginning to believe these guys make up quotes almost about everything. They insert different words that have different theological weight into scripture as well. Um, They insert words into quotes or really misquote people and, and often misquote the Bible. So at the one minute, 15 minute mark in this episode, it starts off really wonky. Um, I think he misquoted Winston Churchill. I could stand to be corrected. Please correct me. Um, 
but I can't believe Winston Churchill would have said something like that. So at the 150 minute mark, Farrelly starts talking about how he grew up in an Assemblies of God, and he said a quote-unquote non-spooky background, or minus all the spooky stuff. So my question is, what's spooky about Bethel? He keeps saying that in the last three or four episodes, uh, he, he's mentioned it at least once or twice. I, I would say four or five times, actually, um, that he's mentioned the word spooky. I didn't say it. He said it in relation to tongue speaking or manifestation. What's spooky about that is my question. And why would he use that word? So um, Fairley starts to point out, to talk about the fivefold ministry, and he defines it as uh, a church being, quote, led by evangelists, pastors, prophets, apostles, and teachers. Unfortunately, that's not what Ephesians 4 is talking about. These are gifts. It's pretty obvious from the passage that the fivefold ministry are talking about gifts. It says, when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. Jesus himself gave gifts to men. Nowhere in that passage does it say that those fivefold giftings are leadership positions in the church. Mm -mm, it's not. Then Chris Vallotton talks about what the fivefold ministry is at, the, at about the 2.30-minute mark in the video. He encourages the listener to go and read the passages in Ephesians 4 and then begins to read just the one verse where the five gifts are described. So this is how they do. They read something and take it out of context to build a theology by taking texts, scripture texts, out of context. My question to, then was, uh, why didn't you read the whole passage? I mean, you've got a two-hour episode already, so go, go ahead and read the whole passage, right? You've got it right there in front of you. It's open. Why not just read? He's got it right on his iPad there. Why not just read the whole context from start to finish in this chapter? And then we could see clearly that the five-fold ministry are giftings, but they don't want you to know that. They want you to be deceived that the and to think that these are ministry positions in the church, that the church should be led by these five type of giftings. They're not leadership positions. So, of course, uh, they do practice this often, uh, taking Scripture out of context to prove their points um, when they're not. When they're not, it's, it's obvious from the context, these are gifting. So Chris reads Ephesians 4.11 through 13 to substantiate the need for continual apostleships to this day. He uses the end of the passage to say, we're not fully mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ yet. So that's the argument. The church is not fully mature, so we still need apostles leading and teaching and prophets. Um, and... However, the critique against the movement is not saying that there are no apostles at all today. Some people do say that there are no apostles and no prophets anymore. I'm of the uh, opinion that there are apostles, small a apostles, meaning missionaries, sent ones. The, the, the word apostolos just means sent. That's it. Um, with a sent with a, with a uh, particular task. You know, so missionary sent to a place to be a missionary. That's what apostle means. Um, so the so we're not saying that there are no longer uh, apostles and prophets, um, meaning the person who would proclaim the truth, truth teller uh, as an apostle and prophet as gifting, but that there are no longer official offices. They would say that the fivefold ministry, those are all offices. Grab this book real quick. This is Modern Day Apostles, 
Shay Ahn wrote this book. The subtitle is Operating in Your Apostolic Office and Anointing. So they believe there's a particular, special, peculiar anointing for apostles to govern the church. And he talks about the government within the book very, very at, at length. I mean, pick it up yourself. I'm not making stuff up. The critics of this movement don't make stuff up. It is clear that they believe that it's a governing office, apostolic office, um, that it is the, the lead uh, office of leadership in the church and prophets, secondly. So we look at the New Testament, and the New Testament writers made no such stipulations for following offices. So the 12, the, the 12 and the replacement of Judas, Thaddeus, made no such stipulations for preceding offices or, or offices to be filled and, and, and how to fill those offices. They didn't inaugurate new apostles. They asked clearly in Titus and Timothy and Peter to install elders and pastors. Um, they did not carry a line of succession. Paul did not replace himself. As an apostle with a governmental office, Peter did not replace himself. The early church fathers also wrote continually about this idea. All the church fathers understood that the 12 were the end of the official line of apostles. Um, and, and, and they did not seek to, you know, if you'd have called Origen or one of these early church fathers an apostle, he would have rebuked you out of hand and said, we are not apostles. There are no more apostles. The 12 were it um, as far as offices are concerned. Um, the only way this passage could, could be read is, is, in, is in giftings. Everything in this passage is about gifting. The preceding verses describe he gave gifts to men. Gifts is, appears, I believe the word gift appears like five or six times in that early section in Ephesians 4. He left those, those, those sections out, of course. So at the four-minute mark, Chris Vallotton, um starts to describe how many apostles and prophets are named in the New Testament. Of course, these are all slanted in their favor to say that there were tons of apostles and those were all official offices, but they weren't. So the word just means sent one. That's how it's being used in the New Testament by and large. Um, and, and the 12 official offices ended with the 12. So Bethel Church and the New Apostolic Reformation make more of this word than really is there in the Greek. I mean, this is a prime example of them making more of this word than is there. Uh, Cheon, pick it up for yourself. Uh, if you want to buy it, I don't encourage buying it, but if you want to see, there's plenty of evidence that they believe and they build this word out to mean more than it is in the New Testament. It's, it's, it's not what... The New Testament describes. They build that a huge theology on top of apostleships and uh, the office, the governmental office of apostles. Um, he does it in this, in this, in the title. I mean, the title says it all. The apost the apostolic governmental office has ceased, and there's no passing it on. The apostles themselves, the twelve, did not. If they would have, if they would have wanted the 
office to continue, they would have made stipulations for it somewhere in the New Testament, but they made none. They only made stipulations and made uh, commands for what an elder ought to be and and what a pastor ought to be, the the characteristics of those people. But they just created extrapolate on extrapolation. So again, the early church made no such reference to anything, and they would have shirked, you know... (laughs) All these, uh, all these early church fathers would have really bristled at anybody calling them an apostle, given that lab- label. Think about Justin Martyr or, or any of those people. No, the church councils, none of them took the, the, the title of apostle. You can't find one reference in early church history to the apostle Justin Martyr or, or what have you, or origin, the apostle origin, none of them. And there are no instructions for continuing an office of apostle. Otherwise, we would have pretty thorough instructions, I imagine, on who is an apostle and what, uh, how to install apostles and the like. So at the 445-minute mark, Chris Valentin then says that uh, it's interesting. We only emphasize that call to, I guess he means the pastoral ministry, because uh, he says there's actually really no New Testament named pastors uh, in the New Testament church. Um, so in the church age, we should rather, uh, have apostles. That's his argument. The problem with this is basically then you're saying that the church government or church government up to this point in human history, the last 2000 years or so has gotten it wrong. Pastors, elders, and deacons is the biblical form of church governance and churches have gotten it wrong for this long. I mean... The, the again the hubris of these guys is coming out we've gotten we're getting it right now we're restoring the office of apostle and prophet and that's how it should have been for 2000 years everybody else got it wrong no church structure or hierarchy or organizational leadership has ever had apostles prophets evangelists pastors teachers as their official uh, office official office and and governmental leadership structures correct me if i'm wrong um, but up to the last, I mean, you know, from the Azusa street revival to now, this restorational movement has only started talking about this. I'm not aware of in human in church history of, uh, people being named apostles, except for maybe the Catholic church that tries to, um, uh, argue that the Pope is in the line of the apostolic succession. So they talk about apostolic succession of Peter. So that the Pope is actually in the official line of apostolic succession of Peter. That's the only one that I'm aware of that talks about apostle. But I don't, I don't think they even call the Pope apostle, this, that, or the other thing. Uh, they just believe he's in the line of the, the apostolic successional line of Peter. So, again, we're, do, we're getting it right. The restoration movement, restoring these things, um, is getting it right, and the last 2,000-odd years of Christian history have gotten it wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, so Chris Vallotton then says, the apostles were the most commonly named leadership office in the New Testament. I can give maybe a reason for that here. Um, it's a missiological reason. If his numbers hold true, and I think he gives an, a certain number, I don't remember the number um, of how many times the word apostle appears in the New Testament. Um, I've never done a study of that before, but if the whole numbers hold true, 
they're at least in the ballpark of 20 plus apostles on top of the 12. Probably the reason for that was because they called those people who were missionaries at the time apostles. That's the missile. That's the a simple answer for that. The church was expanding rapidly, as we see in the uh, Great Commission and the, and the persecutions. So the commission um, and the second commission in Acts uh, 1.8, if you want to look at it, and, and there they received the persecution, they were spread out because of persecution. Um, uh, Acts 1.8, the second Great Commission happens. You'll, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when it happened, they started being persecuted, so they had to flee to those areas. So the answer to the question there is that there were probably lots of named apostles um, because they were sent as missionaries. Those folks who had uh, been sent by Jerusalem Church, by another church in Antioch, for instance, was where they were sending lots of missionaries from. Those people were probably called uh, apostles in the Greek um, as sent ones. And the word missionary actually just means sent to. Uh, apostolos, you could actually apply that Greek word to most missionaries. That's probably just an easy explanation for why the word apostle, apostolos, appears so often in the New Testament. I'm not sure. I have not done a study on it myself. He could just be making that up. But um, yeah those people were probably just missionaries. They weren't referring to them as the 12 uh, would be, have been referred to. So then what happens um, with this, they, they say that there's an official office and then they make these arguments like there's so many, look how many people were in the, in the New Testament were named apostles. And, and what they'll do then with that is then extrapolate on what their authority might have been. They create these huge, um, uh, sort of arguments of what an apostle's authority would have uh, encompassed um, when it's nowhere in the New Testament. Even, I mean, even the 12 didn't have the type of authority that, for instance, Shean gives apostles in this, in this book. I, I just read, uh, let me do this. I'll read the chapter titles. All right. So apostles are called by God. Apostles are sent by God. Apostles are commissioned. Apostles have Christ-like character. Apostles have extraordinary authority. Uh, apostles have authority to wage warfare, to make apostolic decrees and binding and loosing. I don't see any of the 12 doing such things um, in the New Testament. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see any binding and loosing by apostles. Apostles have the law of apostolic attraction. That's almost the, the law of the law of attraction. There, uh, they, in other words, they attract apostles to themselves. Apostles are aligned. They cast vision. They work with prophets. So apostles work in tandem with prophets. Apostles form apostolic teams. They have different types of apostles, vertical apostles, business apostles. Uh, Shayan in this book, names Bill Johnson the apostle to Northern California or to California. I mean, that's a lot of people. Um, they're catalytic pioneers. They govern. Apostles govern. So they have a governmental function. Um, that even the 12 probably didn't quite govern like i mean you can imagine the jerusalem council where they decided things but governing they resolved conflicts they determined spheres of ministry 
They receive revelation. Now, the apostles, the 12, did receive revelation. And what did they do with that? They wrote it down and they made the New Testament. So they're saying that he's saying that apostles receive revelation. And what, what can that mean? That basically the Bible's not enough. They need new revelations and so forth. They impart spiritual gifts. This is a one that I have a big problem with. No, no apostles impart spiritual gifts. Nobody imparts spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit gives the gifts to people as he wills. Sorry. Um, they're called the disciple nations and so forth and so on. I mean, they align generations. They uh, have respect. They're master builders. Apostles have access to great wealth. The, that's the, the, the transfer of wealth that they've talked about and prophesied for years and years and years. Basically, give us your money. Um, yeah, no, they don't have extraordinary authority. Um, and the office of apostle does not exist today. They're making it up. It's a construct that they've created. Um, that's Shayan's book. And just to make sure that you're aware of the connections... Bill Johnson wrote the foreword. He is the uh, apostle at Bethel Church in California. He wrote the foreword for this book, and Chris Valentin wrote a recommendation. Where is he? He is right here on the second page of the, of the front leaflet. Chris Valentin wrote a recommendation for this book, Modern Day Apostles. They believe it. They're part of it. They can't say they're not part of the NAR. So, which they will equivocate on in this, in this uh, episode. So Dan Farrelly basically says that people of human history, especially the reformers, Luther and Calvin, and these, these were creating new teachings, and so they were apostles, and they didn't quite know what to call themselves, so they, they just didn't use the word apostle, but they were apostles. This is laughable, man. I mean, seriously, that the some of the greatest theologians of human history did not know what the word apostle was. So they did not know they could call themselves apostles. This is laughable. <laughs> the guy who translated the Bible from the Latin Vulgate and the Greek, he translated it in six months, did not know what the Greek word apostolos was. It's laughable. So he did not know that he could, he didn't just, just didn't know he could call himself an apostle, but he was an apostle. That's garbage. I mean, it's, it's hilarious. These guys, if rolling over in your grave was a thing and you could do it, they would be rolling over in their graves, listening to Dan Farrelly say that they were apostles. <laughs> Calvin, can you imagine Calvin, the apostle John Calvin, the apostle Martin Luther? Can you imagine that? No because they would have rebuked you to your face saying, I am not an apostle. <laughs> I mean, this, these guys, is just it's hilarious. <laughs> it's just so unbelievable that they would name all these people throughout history as apostles. And he goes on for quite a long time, actually, about this, Dan Farrelly, in this section. All these people, they're all basically apostles, and they didn't even know what to call themselves. Uh, they didn't know they could use that name. Of course they knew what the word apostle was, and the 12 apostles, and Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I mean... <laughs> 
it's 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 really laughable. It's hilarious. That's why they didn't call themselves apostles. They was just they just didn't know that they could. You know, they didn't know the name. Again, these guys in human history did not take the title of apostle because it would not have been appropriate for them to take those titles anymore. They didn't take governmental authority. They didn't take a governmental title. The title belongs to the twelve alone. You can have the gift of apostle and you're sent one like a missionary, like I explained, because the term is so loaded and it really belongs completely to the 12, no one else. And that's why these guys did not take those titles. And of course, they knew what the word apostle meant. Of course, they translated the Bible uh, Wycliffe and, and, and Luther and other people and other translators in human history, of course they knew what the apo word apostle was. And that's why they did not take the title unto themselves. So at the 645 mark, uh, Fairley describes uh, why we lost the apostolic structure. And he says it was for two, two reasons. We lost the apostolic structure where heresy and persecution came into play. The problem with this viewpoint is that you can't point to a single church father, uh, those immediately following in the succession of church leadership, they did not call themselves apostles. Um, they, they stopped it. They, they, they immediately, those people in the immediate succession of John the Revelator, uh, Peter, and the like, those who are the immediate generation after them did not carry the title or the term uh, apostle in their title. And so at the eight minute mark, Chris Valentin claimed uh, or had gone back in history and said that people who have typically embraced apostles, those apostles have either abused power or have been or been not been accountable to people or had too tight of a hierarchy. This is pretty funny because that's actually one of the main arguments that these uh, that there are no official apostles anymore is that there's been typically, it's been typically abused throughout church history. Those who call themselves apostles, those who claim to be apostles have belonged to sectarian and cult type groups that don't belong to Christian orthodoxy. So he's sort of confirming uh, the argument. Like we argue that people who have claimed to be apostles belong to cults and sects and have abused it. That's why we should abandon it. That's one of the reasons because, for, I mean, you know, of course it's a New Testament argument. The 12 were the 12 alone and there are no more apostles and we should abandon it. But another argument on top of that is that those who have claimed to be apostles have typically abused uh, their, their authority. So the main teaching since the death of the 12 throughout church history uh, on through the Reformation and to today has been that pastors, elders, overseers, bishops, uh, and the like, and deacons, uh, those govern the church in every area, not apostles or prophets. At the 11-minute mark, Chris Valentin talks about or uses the phrase um, that they carried a relational capacity, that the apostles carry a relational capacity or relational authority for each other. There's no hierarchy, and there isn't. We, we agree. 
the New Apostolic Reformation is not an organization, it's not a denomination, it's, it's a loose affiliation of networks and a relational authority. And he confirms that here. He confirms their belief that they kind of um, are accountable to each other in this movement. So, I mean, if you want to know who's part of the movement, just look at some of these books and the people who endorse people, Dr. Uh, Robert Henderson, Dr. Patricia King, um, uh, Sean Bowles, James Gall, uh, Chris Valentin, Robert Morris, Cindy Jacobs, Pastor Jimmy Evans, Lou Engel, Bill Johnson, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You can take one of these books up in my office here. I've got my stacks. So here's another one. It's called The Reformer's Pledge. If you want to believe that the New Apostolic Reformation is a thing, here's the re book, The Reformer's Pledge. A group of uh, apostles in the movement have gotten together and written articles. So Bill Johnson has wrote an article in this book, Lance Wallnow, Chuck Pierce, Heidi Baker, C. Peter Wagner, the let's say not the inventor, but he didn't invent the movement, but he just noticed it first and put a coin, the phrase, the new apostolic reformation and became a active part of that movement. I read an article, uh, 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 academic article that he published uh, in 1999, I believe it was. Um, C. Peter Wagner was a part of just a, the, the fuller uh, theological department uh, and was a missiologist and teacher there. And he started noticing the trends of this movement. And um, as he noticed it and started wanting to become a part of it, becoming more and more open to it. He dropped his status and, and, and resigned from his post at Fuller and started the Wagner Institute. And he describes this in detail in his article, his process on the road of mission and how he became a part of the NAR, how he coined the phrase and how he became a part of the NAR himself. The article's very telling. It's very clear that he was a part, um, not originally, not initially, but that he noticed it, coined the phrase, the New Apostolic Reformation, and then became one of the major purporters and perpetrators of that theological background and basis and started the Wagner Institute to continue to push this movement on. James Gall also wrote an article in here, John Arnott, uh, uh, Cindy Jacobs, Lou Engel, Jim Garlow. So these are these guys believe it's a reformation. I mean, the book is called The Reformers Pledge. They all claim they're apostles in the movement and so on and so forth. So it's not a construct of our imagination. The critics haven't come up with a thing. C. Peter Wagner is clearly identified, clearly cited throughout history from the 90s on as being the founder, as coining the phrase. And so um, it is a relational network. You see them relating to each other. And and John uh, Chris Valentin here um, actually really confirms what we have thought of and how and what we have the critics have defined as the movement. Um, it's a relational network of holding each other accountable. It's a relational authority. There's no hierarchical structure. Um, we hold each other accountable and hold uh, this and that other person accountable to a, their apostolic authority. We hold each other uh, in accountability. Again, uh, this is, however, an extrapolation of extrapolation. So, of course, those people in the times of the New Testament had relational authority, but they were uh, the 12 apostles, and they had the ability to decide things together, like the Jerusalem Council, where they decided what to do with the new converts. Uh, 
that was that fell under their apostolic authority because they're the founders and the cornerstone. They are the foundation. The cornerstone is Christ, and the foundation is the apostles' teaching. So what he says here, what he what he's getting at the point here is that that it's an organic uh, relational network, and it is. I mean, it, we we agree on that. That the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, all apostles who call themselves apostles or allow themselves to be named as apostles. Um, <clears throat> They do get together and and they have a relational authority together, and they do. Um, I agree, it's an organic, natural relationship with each other. They don't have a hierarchy. They don't have an organizational structure, uh, except for things like ICAL, International Council of Apostolic Leaders, and 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 these councils. They do those those places do have organizational um, authority or organizational structures, and so. There's not a one-size-fits-all organization that says, oh, if you're NAR, you are in this organization. But there are organizations. There are hierarchies. Um, you know, the Revival Alliance, uh, International Council of Apostolic Leaders and stuff like that. There's prophetic councils and stuff like that. There are things that are organizational, but not everyone belongs to them or whatever. So... Um, and so he's trying to diminish this and say, well, we're just, we're, we're not, there's no real official thing, you know, there's no official strict hierarchical structure. Um, they don't have like Bill Johnson at the top making all the decision and just do what he says. No, no, no. And we, we don't say that either, but there are, there is a, such a thing. So they don't have a structure that says basically here's the untouchable apostles at the top. But in practice, basically these guys are untouchable. So any of one of the ones, the apostles, Che An, Bill Johnson, any of these people who are in this book here, um, in the Reformers Pledge, you you wouldn't be able to approach them and, and critique them. Um, you know, they're they're untouchable in essence. Um, as I tried to actually approach Bill Johnson, I sent him a sent him the quotes that when I was writing my book, I didn't have to. I want did did do it just to be above reproach to say, hey, you know, I did try to approach him. I gave gave him my quotes, uh, but his gatekeeper basically uh, stopped me at the door and said, no, um, we're not really responding to those who have made up their minds, um, and are critics. So, uh, they, they'll barely respond to the people in their own church, much less anyone who's outside or brought up objections about bad theology. Um, so this is just, uh, they just quietly ask you to leave. Um, you've seen that over and over again. Um, they uninvite you if you're inside the church and bring up questions and, and continue to bring up questions. Um, so, yeah, that it's 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 impractical. Johnson is in practice untouchable. Chris Valentin is untouchable. These guys can just make false prophecies, like Chris Valentin did this year with the not this year, but the year with the presidency. He uh, pro falsely prophesied that Trump would win the election. Uh, in America and didn't come to pass. And then he basically put out a video saying, yeah, you know, you can make false prophecies and not, and not be a false prophet. I don't know how he justifies it, but he just does. So you're untouchable. Um, and these guys can continue to make false prophecies and false statements and uh, poor theology. And they're just, they're just untouchable in practice and reality. So at the 11 minute and 40 second mark, Chris Valentin starts talking about people who are in the Revival Alliance. So that's another sort of NAR organization, Heidi Baker, Shay Ahn, Bill Johnson. He says they have a, a type of accountability with each other. 
And that's an absolute joke. Uh, they, they, they don't have any accountability with each other. I mean, in the sense that, that they're actually calling each other to theological purity. They have the exact same theology. They agree 1,000% with each other. Not one of them is holding each other accountable in any kind of theological sense. There's no pushback from each other in that group. I'm sure those guys just agree 100% with each other, happy and glad with each other's goings on and doings. It, it's, it's pretty obvious because in the last book, Shayan said that Bill Johnson, again, Bill Johnson wrote the foreword for his book, um, Modern Day Apostles, and he describes Heidi Baker and, and, and uh, he describes Bill Johnson and they're, they're, they just prop each other up. You know, they never, ever criticize. They pat each other on the back. They give each other high fives. They, they never give a word of criticism to each other, ever, ever. You'll never see someone stand up on a stage and say, you know what, Shayan wrote this book and I'm not sure real, real clear on this and, and I think it's, it's probably something to be avoided. Never, ever, ever, ever in a million years will you hear them criticize each other. Not from a stage anyways, not, for, not in a book anyways. Um, because that's the point of the whole movement. You have to create a culture of honor. Another book from... Forward by Bill Johnson called A Culture of Honor by Danny Silk. He's one of the pastoral staff at Bethel, sustaining a supernatural environment, basically propping each other up, holding each other in high honor, never criticizing, never, ever, ever, no, never, never, never criticizing people um, or, or, or teaching, not, not even just people. I'm not, and we're not trying to criticize. Even the critique of these people is not trying to criticize them personally. I don't know them personally. I'm trying to, to differentiate and discern their teaching. And that's why I go get their books. Um, I've got a huge, I got stacks everywhere. That's why I go get their books to discern what they teach. I don't care what they do personally. I mean, I, I do care, sure, but I'm not trying to critique them personally. I don't, I don't dislike them personally. But um, this movement tries to create a culture of honor. Um, and if you don't honor the apostles, then you're touching the Lord's anointed. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. And that's also a theological facet of this movement. Don't touch the Lord's anointed or else you'll be judged. Chris Vallotton says at the 12, uh, 35 minute mark that apostles and prophets then are the foundation, not the ceiling. First of all, he's uh, misquoting scripture. He's misrepresenting Ephesians 2, verse 20, where it says, uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, uh, Christ himself being the cornerstone, that this passage means that the apostles and prophets have written the Bible, and that's the foundation of our faith. So he equates himself here, or puts himself here in that quote as saying that the apostles and prophets themselves are the foundation of the church. So these current uh, apostles are the foundation. That passage in Ephesians 2 is talking about the 12 and the previous apostles who wrote, uh, prophets who wrote the scripture. So uh, this passage has been understood to my understanding, um, and I'd have to maybe check commentaries and stuff, but for 2,000 years that this, this meaning of the, that passage is that the apostles and prophets who wrote the scripture and transmitted it to us uh, are the foundation. So anyways, they just create stuff. The apostles are the foundation, not the ceiling. Um, 
yeah, he's made it up. The, there's no ceiling in that passage. I mean, he says the foundations of the of the uh, uh, the apostles and prophets are the foundation, not the ceiling. The word ceiling doesn't appear in that passage. So he just made it up. They make stuff up about themselves as apostles, and they're they're not the ceiling. I mean, they're not the top of the triangle. They're not the top of the high hierarchical pyramid. Uh, which is what he's talking about in this context, but that doesn't appear anywhere in that text. You can't create that kind of teaching out of thin air. There's no biblical basis for them being a ceiling, a, a foundation, a basement, a part of a house, whatever. And, and so what he's trying to say in this context is that we're not the ceiling, we're not the hierarchy, they're, they're, you know, we're just a foundation, um, and, and that he's trying to do make an argument against the hierarchy, continuing to make an uh, argument against the hierarchy. But that's not, that doesn't square with reality about how these guys view themselves. They're so arrogant. They're so full of themselves. They're, the hubris is thick. I mean, they, they, he writes this book here saying everything that they are, they're governors, they're, they're heads of, of nations. They disciple nations. Like even the 12, could the 12 have even said that they're discipling nations? Uh, it's just the hubris is really, really thick with these guys. They can't even say um, that they're the ceiling. Uh, they are at the tip of the hierarchical chain in this movement. They are the top. And, and uh, so uh, it doesn't square with reality and especially the practice in the everyday lives of these churches. At the 15-minute mark, they use the first replacement of Judas in Acts 1 as, as not necessarily the criterion for being a modern-day apostle. Uh, there, Judas was replaced uh, and, and make, make, make it so there were 12 again. And so uh, Thaddeus was the replacement. And these modern-day apostles are different. So in that section here, they basically are trying to say that those were, that was then, that's how they replaced uh, a Judas, but that doesn't apply to today. You don't have to have seen Jesus personally. You don't have to have um, have, have been with him in all his comings and goings. You don't have to have basically had those. That's not the criterion for, for today, for, for replacing apostles. So again, just really, it's, it's there in the text. And, and they were replacing to fulfill the 12. That was it then. They just wanted to make sure that there was 12 to replace Judas. Um, and so, yeah. So then Valentin goes on to talk about prophets and that um, Jesus doesn't say that all prophets in the last days will be false. So because there, his argument is because there are some false prophets, um, that there have to be some uh, real prophets, true prophets. So his whole argument here is that that Jesus says that there are false prophets. There will be false prophets in the last days. And because he says there are false prophets, there must then be, because there are false prophets, there must then be true prophets. Um, but Jesus really doesn't comment on true prophets and how they ought to be. The argument from absence, so the absence of Jesus' words proves that there's a, you know, because he talks about the one, there must be the other. But but Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say there will be true prophets. Um, this is a non-starter argument uh, because you can't argue from Scripture something because of its absence, right? So there must be this be because the other thing was mentioned, right? Right. Um, 
because there's uh, uh, false prophets, there has to be true prophets. It doesn't say that in the text. So you can't, you can't argue from an absence of something. Um, so Jesus doesn't say there will be true prophets uh, or because he says that, you know, that there, there are these false prophets. There must be true prophets along with that. Um, yeah, because Jesus is silent on the issue doesn't mean there's true prophets um, or the, the office of prophet is what he's arguing here. So um, you, you can't assume or argue that because of the absence of something, that something's not spoken to or spoken about, that there must be a positive to the negative, yeah? There must be a, a, a true prophet mixed in with all that false prophecy and all this error, and it's, it's a bad hermeneutical assumption. So they close up the section on the fivefold ministry by repeating their thoughts at the 1830-minute mark that they believe and teach that apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, shepherds, uh, are, are, and the fivefold ministry are offices. He says it again, Dan Fairley at the 18 minute mark says again and repeats it again. They believe that the fivefold ministry are offices. Then Fairley repeats at the end of this section again his idea and thought that people who founded denominations were moving in, um, quote unquote, apostolic authority. They just didn't actually know that they were. <laughs> could call themselves apostles. They weren't aware, they weren't aware of the word apostle. Um, hmm, man, I should have known that. I, you know, Calvin's up in heaven thinking, um, I should have just called myself an apostle. I didn't even know that I could do that. <laughs> I, I, it's really a, a stretch, man, a big stretch. I don't, I don't know if Bethel actually views this or this is actually a Bethel view. It's in the Bethel podcast, Rediscover Bethel, that Luther, Calvin, Spurgeon, and all those other early American uh, revivals, the Great Awakenings, uh, that those people were moving in apostolic authority, um, that they were apostles, as in the office, holding an office of apostle, I can assure you that most of the people that they named would reject the idea out of hand that they were apostles of Jesus Christ, holding the official office of apostle. They would almost out of hand deny that they were apostles. Look at Luther's writings. Look at Calvin's writings. All of them. They were, they were trying to fight the apostolic succession. I mean... Luther, look what he said about the Pope, right? He he fought tooth and nail against the Pope and his idea of apostolic succession. Um, the Catholic Church taught this at the time, and they still do, um, that the Pope is the direct lineage, apostolic lineage of Peter. So they believe that he was an apostle, and the Pope is an apostle. In essence, uh, they believe uh, in what they call apostolic succession, which is the thought that they're, they're true apostles and that they can continue to lay a foundation of the church. And that's what the popes, all the way since Luther's time, have continued to do because they believe they're in the apostolic line. So Luther, so trying to say that Luther was an apostle it's just, it's upside down logic. You, you, you can't even, I don't know. You can, Luther would have rejected it out of hand. The idea of apostolic succession being called an apostle. Um, wow. What they're doing here is trying to um, 
put themselves into the main line of Christianity, right? So by saying Spurgeon and 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 Calvin and and all the reformers would have really called themselves apostles, anyways, they're trying to put themselves in a, and associate themselves with the main line theological camps, and, and it just it doesn't hold water. You can't you can't they're they're, they're saying basically, look, we're really you know, we're really with everybody in, in church history. They would have done this had they known how to do it. They would have done this. They were really apostolic anyways. And so they're trying to put themselves into the, you know, the, the main red line of church history. And it's baffling. None of these people would believe or be comfortable calling themselves apostles. Uh, it's just so... Really, unbelievable. I was really beside myself. I was literally sitting beside myself while watching and listening to them try to claim that Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon would have basically, all these people in church history up to the great reformations of American history, et cetera, would have have basically called themselves apostles. They just didn't know how. I wonder if he's actually read, ever read anything from Luther or Calvin. It, it's almost like um, he said he studied theology for seven years. Uh, it's almost like he really did not ever read these guys um, and and know that they were fighting this fight of apostolic succession. So at the 19-minute mark, they talk, started talking about the history of denominations and that all these denominations came out of quote unquote anointed leadership. Dan Fairley starts talking about denominations, how they basically started through anointed leadership. This is also a false understanding of anointing. So those people who are super Christians, the Charles Wesley's, the Amy Simple McPherson's, they were the anointed people, I guess because they could start denominations, but this is a false understanding of anointing. The Bible is very clear that we are all anointed in Christ Jesus. No one is more anointed than another. 2 Corinthians 1, 20 to 22. Go check them out for yourself. I won't read them here. 1 John 2, verse 18 to 27. And I've just written a paper actually about this and the abuses of the uh, the term and the concept, the construct of anointing that uh, the NAR and other modern uh, Christians propose, that there's a special class of anointed people out there, um, and they have this extra capacity, um, as it were, uh, in Christ to do the same things, to, to do these these greater works um, than any other Christians. Now, did God allow Luther or Amy Semple McPherson or any other of these people to do something outstanding for him in starting a denomination? Sure, that could be. Um, but it's not because they were more anointed than another. NAR theology says that people are more, there are people who are more anointed than us, and that's why uh, they can label people apostles. They have an apostolic anointing. It's in the title of the book. Operating in your office, apostolic office and anointing. There is, they believe, an apostolic anointing for special people to be, yeah, 
in those special places, those, those, there's no regular, those, those regular Joes. They're just, there's a higher level of anointing. Um, so an apostle who can bring heaven to earth has a bigger, better, or greater anointing than another apostle or another pastor or teacher who's just a regular old Joe teaching at his church faithfully, feeding his flock, and that type of thing. The conclusion you can draw uh, is that those regular Joes are boring, you know, you boring pastors out there. But the other people who started awesome stuff, especially like them, are more anointed. So um, it, it's, it's an elitism. Uh, they actually believe it. They believe there's a special, a, pro, uh, a proper anointing for those of us who would really want to do something extraordinary for God. There's no, you know, there's no room for regular Joes in their apostolic anointing and, 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 and hierarchy, actually. So they talk about there's no hierarchy, but there really is because you have to have that extra special anointing. I think one of the things that uh, might need to be necessarily really fully addressed is the idea of this theology of anointing. I've written this article on it. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to get it published now, and uh, hopefully we'll be presenting it at this uh, at a conference this summer, God willing. And uh, um, so they believe that. They teach that they push this anointing. They push that people can become more anointing and their constant emphasis on it. So that's why kids go to BSSM. Bethel School Supernatural Ministry, because they want to become more anointed. So how do you become more anointed? Go to go there. Go to the places where the space between heaven is and earth is thin. You know, those thin places. Uh, go to Cheon's church. Go to his his uh, uh, apostolic center. Go to, Wa- go to Wagner Leadership Institute. You'll get yourself an apostolic degree. They'll even lay hands on you and transfer the anointing, the apostolic anointing uh, of God uh, from him to you. Uh, Why do people go to IHOP in Kansas City? Why do they go to these places, literally physically pick up their lives and go because they want to get the anointing from Mike Bickle. He'll lay hands on you and you can, and actually Bill Johnson talks about it. Be in the atmosphere of anointing. Uh, it's, It's all over his books. Go and be underneath uh, one of those anointed leaders. So the theology of anointing is something that really needs to be addressed um, altogether. Because if you, it's it's sort of a it's a house of cards. If you take that anointing card out of the out of the bottom of their foundation, the whole thing crumbles. Because you know that's what they base the whole thing on. Even C. Peter Wagner, I mentioned him earlier in his article that he wrote. He wrote that his ministry, his Wagner Institute and all these institutions that train for the anoint for the apostolic leadership will focus on transferring the anointing. That's what it says in his, in his article. Um, and, uh, so they believe it. Um, it needs to be dealt with. The theology anointing is seen throughout all these four videos so far. They really emphasize it and talk about anointing several times. So at the 20-minute mark, Chris describes an encounter he had with the Lord where he told him that God told him or the Lord Jesus personally told him, we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. Uh, Chris Valton starts to explain here that he had an encounter with the Lord. I, I was actually at Bethel when he described this during a sermon in January of 2020. The story has changed since I heard it at Bethel. It's interesting. He, I've heard it several times, but I didn't. 
it's changed now into this episode. He said that he was at a hotel or some cabin somewhere and, and on vacation, even maybe, um, I'm not sure exactly the details anymore from that time at Bethel, but uh, this story he's telling now, it sounds to me like he was at Bethel itself laying on the floor, and he says he it, it was 20 years ago uh, that Jesus appeared to him and told him that Bethel, or their movement, they're moving away from denominationalism to apostleships. Now, whatever that means, it's not real clear, but he fills it out in his sermon that I heard, and I'll give you the link of my reviews to the time uh, where I was at Bethel, and I explained the problems with that, uh, and, and I'll get put those in the description. Um, so uh, he describes a personal revelation from Jesus Christ. Uh, by and large, the church has had as its governing rule elders, deacons, and the presbytery or overseers, as Timothy, Titus, and Peter describes. But this, Jesus, with this, Jesus gave him a new revelation that they would do and organize their church differently. Jesus told him their church would be run by apostles, meaning the office of apostles, so that this is the very definition for me of extra-biblical revelation. For 2,000 years, the church has based their leadership, governmental leadership structures on the presbytery, elders, pastors, deacons. And now we're changing? Um, this is extra biblical revelation at its finest. It pretty much fulfills completely a criterion for extra biblical revelation. Up to this point in human history, what have we had in the Bible is sufficient for all church governance and all matters of faith and life. But when he has a personal revelation of Jesus Christ and Jesus tells him we're doing something different than the last 2000 years and different than what stands in the scriptures on those pages, this is borderline new scripture. Jesus has given Chris Valentin a new revelation and command of how to run, how to organize, and how to govern churches than we've practiced for the last 2,000 years. They're moving to apostles as the governing heads of churches. This is a new revelation and falls under the category of scripture. Um, Jesus spoke it to him. If Jesus spoke it to him, he's the word of God, and what he says is 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 scripture. Um, so they're changing their governmental structure and their movement. And when I was in Bethel there, he was talking about, we need to, um, to, to occasionally go over the DNA of our movement. And so that's their, that's the DNA of their movement, but the, the new apostolic reformation and those who are aligned with them. Um, this is also not to mention that Chris Valentin says that, that they're moving away from denominationalism to apostleships. And then he says that the Lord asked him, ask me what that means. Uh, my question here is, does Jesus play hard to get when he's trying to get a message across? <laughs> is Jesus coy? Is that the experience of any of the New Testament writers? Did Jesus appear to Paul and say, hey, I want you to write something down. You're going to be saved by grace. Ask me what that means. <laughs> did, did Jesus express himself in that way? Do you see that anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus reveals himself to people and he acts this way at all? Sort of hard to get like, hey, you know, I just got to ask that kind of pursue me a little further, you know, um, ask me what that means. You know, did, you, did, did Jesus do that? This is another imagination of how Jesus 
how he seems, you know, how he wants Jesus to be. It's a, it's an imagination. I do not believe Jesus ever played hard to get or was coy. I've never seen that in scripture. That's not part of his personality. He doesn't play hard to get. He either comes right out and says it, or he says it in a parable as a New Testament pattern. But Jesus doesn't play hard to get. Like, ask me, you know, come on. (laughs) I want want you to keep coming in here closer, closer, closer. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, at the 20 minute and 20 second mark, they talk about patriarchal and matriarchal apostleships. Chris Vallotton says apostleships are patriarchal. And then Dan Fairley interrupts him and says, and matriarchal. <laughs> so it's really, it's really funny. They have to make sure that they sort out their politically correct and letting women in as apostles as well. So, and they do. Um, again, um, all these people on here are, you know, Cindy Jacobs is, is as well an apostle, Heidi Baker, all the, all these, you know, famous women speakers there as well. They're, they're matriarchal apostles too. So just want to make sure that, uh, <laughs> all those col- politically correct boxes are checked. So at the 21 minute mark, Chris Valentin starts his explanation of his vision that he had with Jesus, where Jesus told him they're moving to apostleships. And, and what I noticed again in the second hearing of this, maybe the third, I've heard it before a few times, I think, is that it's very interesting. It's hard to tell where the vision of Jesus and Jesus' actual words to Chris begin and ends and where Chris's words continue. Uh, it, it's Chris saying all, all, is Chris saying all this or is, you know, is Jesus saying all this? Are these his thoughts and his understanding? Did Jesus explain to him why the Protestant church split? Because he said that uh, Jesus explained to him or someone explained to him, someone else explained to him why the Protestant church split and why the Catholic church called their leaders fathers. Did Jesus explain all this to him? Or was it a Catholic priest? It, it, it's it's kind of uh, hard to follow what actually Jesus spoke to him and said. It's it, it's hard to tell whether it's Chris actually saying this to himself, uh, kind of thing, or or if Jesus is actually telling him all this. So it's interesting. The vision uh, or the revelation that Jesus gave him. It's it's, it's a slippery slope. Like where does Jesus' words end and Chris's words begin? Where does Jesus' thoughts and Chris's thoughts begin? It's it's hard to nail down what what this vision is and what Jesus actually said. It, it and that's what it is. They're just um, when they present these visions in this movement. I saw Jesus. You watch Sid Roth's show. Every single Sid Roth guest has had a revelation of Jesus Christ. So I mean, they went to heaven, or they they saw Jesus, or they had they were sleeping and they were woken up out of their sleep by a vision. I mean, that's what the show is about nine times out of 10 on Sid Roth's show, you had to have, you have to bring a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, um, all these visions, that's what it is. And, and so they're very confusing sometimes because you never know where Jesus words begin and where his words end. Um, you know, and, 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 and did, did Jesus told him or ask him how many times the Catholic church split in history? Did Jesus really ask him like how many times is the Catholic church split or the church split in human history? You know, so Chris is making a case here why denominationalism is not good or not what God wants anymore. Uh, Denominationalism is not good because of disunity. So Catholic Church has had schisms or the, the Catholic Church has only split twice in all of its history and all the other denominations have had 
they're just spread out and they've had thousands and thousands of schisms, right? So, and he says, they gather when they agree and they split when they disagree. So Valentin's making the connection or the argument that denominationalism isn't good because it's divisive. The Catholic church, however, is good because they haven't divided and they call their leaders fathers. So they're all good because they call their church, their, their, their leaders fathers. Those are my initial thoughts when just hearing this, uh, this, this uh, vision for the third or fourth time. So I was there at Bethel and, and again, I'll post those detailed descriptions. Um, and his sermon was so bad and so unbiblical. Um, yeah, it's all a mess. It's a huge mess. And this is how this cult-like teaching works. I had a vision of Jesus. If you, had a, if you ever hear a person say, I had a vision of Jesus Christ, run. Jesus appeared to me. He said this or that or the other thing. Run, 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 run. Get away. I, I mean, I, I can almost say unequivocally, a leader who thinks they have seen Jesus Christ in the flesh appear to them in a vision is a false teacher. Almost unequivocally, I would warn you very, very strongly to run away from any leader or person who thinks they have seen Jesus Christ in a vision. It's sectarian teaching, and it doesn't belong to Christianity. Their description of apostles, prophets, and how they hold governmental authority over churches is not theological orthodox practice in the Christian church. They display clearly how they believe it. They are a part of the new apostolic reformation. It is very clear throughout this series and abundantly clear in this episode. They believe and teach the premises of the NAR, but the things uh, they teach, in the, especially on the office of apostle and prophet, does not belong to evangelical theological ecclesiology. So this whole section on denominationalism and all that that he talks about is a direct attack on denominations. I can't. So first of all, I cannot imagine how any person can watch this section or that sermon from years ago in in in, 20, in January of twenty twenty. Any person in the denomination can watch this section as a whole, um, and 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 not be deeply offended if you're Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, etc. He basically. Aff- it says, you guys are practicing your government, church governmental leadership wrongly. Jesus wants us to do it with apostles and prophets. What are you waiting for? If you're the head of a Baptist convention, a Presbytery, a Methodist denominational head, a Lutheran denominational head, you have got to be completely offended by listening to this. You guys are all doing it wrong. Every church government that doesn't have apostles and prophets as heads, Jesus wants us to organize our churches that way. Either Jesus wants us to do it that way or we're wrong. So Chris Valentin at the 24 minute mark then says that people who preach in denominations are preaching only to convince people. They're not preaching to inspire people. This is highly offensive. I mean, basically any preacher who preaches in a Baptist denomination or Presbyterian or Lutheran or what have you, whatever other denomination is not preaching to inspire people They're just preaching to convince people. And that's not what any preacher is doing, not what they're seeking to do. They're seeking to teach folks in their denominations who the eternal God is and how to be right with him through Jesus Christ. Whenever I step into the pulpit, 
I'm seeking to explain the eternal God to people, to my hearers, and convince them of his reality and how to be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's my goal every time I step into the pulpit. I want people to know God, to worship him, and to give their lives unabashedly to him through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, Bethel is so big on ecumenicalism. For Valentin to have have this view as a Bethel DNA is highly divisive. How do these guys justify that they're throwing denominations out, basically saying, we're going to lead through apostleships? How do they justify their ecumenical approach and actually basically call all other denominations terrible and awful and divisive? and not what God wants, and Jesus told me we're not doing that anymore. How do they justify Jesus actually teaching Chris Valentin personally that that's not how church ought to be behave anymore and govern itself anymore? And how do they actually th- then say, well, you know, we want to be ecumenical and basically have, have thrown every single denomination under the bus besides Catholicism? and say that Jesus actually told me that we're not organizing and having that organizational structure anymore. You guys are all wrong uh, because Jesus told me. <laughs> if Jesus told him that's the way the, uh, of governance now, then all of the denominations are wrong. Jesus is the full and final authority. Uh, how can we practice that? If Jesus told him, this is how churches ought to govern themselves, then we better obey because Jesus is the full and final authority. If this is meant to be how to practice and Jesus told him, then no other church should practice any other governmental form of leadership. Jesus is the final authority. And if he says it, it's how it ought to be. If Jesus actually spoke to him and told him and revealed to him this, then there's no other way to practice. It is and should be exclusively um, how churches govern. Um, it's the DNA of their movement. And you can look at my other review of this uh, uh, Bethel uh, perspective in his sermon that he spoke, uh, that he preached uh, in 2020. If, it's, if this is what Jesus actually said to him, then it's impossible to do anything else. If Jesus spoke to him truly and honestly, and he holds that authority that Jesus holds, he is God, and what he says is how things ought to be. But Jesus did not speak to him. He did not give him this new revelation. We believe in sola scriptura and the sufficiency of scripture. And so any revelation that Chris Valentin could receive about organizational structure and leadership of the church is extra biblical and stands outside of biblical orthodoxy. God could not have spoken to him through Jesus to tell him something that is a new teaching, a new revelation on how to organize the church. If he did, then all other churches would immediately be practicing wrong organizational leadership and would have to repent immediately and turn to the type of organizational leadership that Chris Valentin says Jesus told him we ought to practice. But it's impossible. Either it's fully the organizational structure of all churches and should be practiced by every single church, or it's not, and Jesus did not speak to him.
Mic drop. <laughs> At the 2430 minute mark, then, Chris Valentin says that you're not supposed to think in religion or in denominations. And if you're thinking, then you cannot belong to denominations. And then he brings up uh, Pharisees and the religious spirit. Of course, these guys jump right onto the religious spirit of anybody who disagrees with them. These things are constructs, okay, uh, that this movement creates. There's no such thing as a religious spirit. They're not talking about spirits like in the zeitgeist or something like that. They're talking about real spirits. They're talking about actual spirits, religious spirits that should be cast out of people spirit of Jezebel, the spirit of this or that, the spirit of all sorts of things. They create these constructs um, and, and they, anybody who acts pharisaical has a religious spirit, and according to them. You know? However, the Pharisees were not pushed on by the religious spirit. They were unrepentant and did not trust in Christ as my Messiah and Savior. Some Pharisees, however, did. Paul, probably Barnabas, Gamaliel, maybe Nicodemus became a follower of Christ who came to Jesus by night and, and, and a few others turned to faith in Jesus. But by and large, the Pharisees did not turn to faith in Jesus. They did not have a demonic spirit that held them away from Jesus. They didn't have a religious spirit. And what they actually mean by religious spirit is actually a demonic spirit that pushes people to religion. This is a teaching that might be good to be investigated a little more in the NAR. They believe that there are spirits under every bush. Um, there's a book called uh, Pigs in a Parlor that talks about the spirit of this and that and the other thing. If they, basically, if there's a sin out there, then it's a demonic spirit. Um, by, uh, the book is by Frank Hammond and Ida M. Hammond. It's called Pigs in a Parlor, uh, a practical guide to deliverance. As far as I can tell, this is the origin of that concept, that there are spirits in everything, and, um, yeah, so, uh, this is a, a construct again, there's not a spirit of religion. Um, they, they describe anybody who would disagree with them as having the spirit of religion in their minds. Uh, the Pharisees uh, are people who hold to the letter of the law are, um, ba basically people who look at the Bible and try to, um, hold their hold the Bible up and hold their teachings up and see if they match. Um, those are people with the spirit of religion. So if you're watching this, you probably have the spirit of religion. Um, I definitely do. And I'm definitely a Pharisee. Um, and I say that in jest as <laughs> just hope you know and realize <laughs> that I'm saying that sarcastically. Um, People who are critics in their movement have the spirit of religion. So we as critics certainly are Pharisees and have the spirit of religion. Um, and people in denominations might even have the spirit of religion too. So just watch out. If you're in a denomination, you might have the spirit of religion. So at the 25, 30-minute mark, Valentin says, uh, I believe it is the inherent word of God. So Chris in this context is talking about his belief in the Bible, how he teaches the Bible. It's his authority. It's his foundation, he says. But then uh, I think he actually uh, uh, confuses the word inherent for inerrant. Um, I may be splitting hairs here. I'm not trying to catch him on anything, but I find it a funny thing. Uh, these guys have no idea about theology. They just don't. They don't understand theology. They don't teach theology. They don't even know what the word inerrant is or means. 
Uh, he just he confuses words, throws words. You know, they just use these uh, these words uh, and themes so they can possibly belong or sound like they belong to the theologically orthodox camp. So if Chris believed that the Bible is inerrant, right? Inherent is not the word. It's inerrant. Then he ought to handle it as if it were inerrant. They don't handle it inerrantly. They don't actually even bother themselves to handle it at all. And when and if they do end up handling it, um, they certainly do not handle it with the reverence that it deserves. They misuse it. They misquote it. They exegete it, exegete it wrongly. They take it out of its context. They proof text for their theology. They engage in improper exposition all the time. So I'm splitting hairs on that word. He meant inerrant. He said inherent. But he said it because he doesn't know the words. He doesn't know what they mean. He doesn't handle the scriptures as they ought to be handled. Uh, they engage in, 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 in abuse of the scriptures all the time. So then at the 25-minute mark, um, this whole podcast, again, uh, sort of I, I mentioned it in the last podcast. He hadn't opened his Bible yet. Um, again, if you're talking about theology and defining your defining your DNA of your movement, you might ought to crack your Bible open, but he hasn't shown or opened it even once. Uh, he, he just used, makes blanket statements again about apostles and how many times the word apostle is used in the New Testament. He doesn't substantiate his arguments with any texts. So if you believe uh, it's, an, it's the inerrant word of God, then why don't you use it? Why don't you treat it as if it were inerrant? Uh, they don't even open it. They just talk around it, about it. Yeah, these guys, uh, they don't have any understanding of the words. Chris Valentin uses the improper theological words all the time. He often uses the word sensationalism in place of cessationism. So he confess, confuses um, those terms and words. I believe these are subtle confusions, um, but they actually are used to manipulate for instance, the sensationalism and cessationism. It creates confusion in his hearers. Uh, he actually switches those words, and I don't know if he does it on purpose, but when you say sensationalism, it's a sensational word. And so the people who hold to the cessation viewpoint are sensationalists, you know, and it's an exaggeration. Uh, it's an unfair rhetorical effect to make your opponent look worse than he is. Again, it's a, a sort of a straw man argument in this instance of sensationalism and cessationism. Um, in switching those words, uh, he makes opponents look more sensational and terrible than they are. Um, his use of, of inherent here instead of inerrant is probably just a slip of the tongue, or but it's subtle, right? I believe in some instances like these, he doesn't know the word, much less the theological position that it, it, it holds to or that it entails. He, he can't defend or explain the position of inerrancy probably in any way, shape, or form. Um, now, he's not a trained theologian. That's part of this thing. You guys got to know that Bill Johnson and Chris Valentin, to my knowledge, are not trained theologians. Bill Johnson is the son of a pastor, so maybe in that sense he has had a, a theological education, but... Um, neither of them have any kind of Bible college or seminary degrees. Um, he gives, he just gives lip service to these positions, you know, um, so that he and Bethel could be considered possibly evangelical in the theological Orthodox camp, even though they're not.
At the 26th mark, Chris Valentin makes the argument that the printing press wasn't even invented until the early 1400s and that the Bibles or the Word of God was not available to people before that. And people didn't have perfect theology then. They, they, they could not have had perfect theology because they didn't have access to Bibles. They couldn't read or... And if they had access to a Bible, they couldn't read it or understand it. This essentially minimizes the work of the Reformers and other people who sought to get the Bible into people's hands. Uh, it's a mischaracterization of the entire time period and that people didn't have the scriptures before that. And if they did have it, they couldn't even read it. Um, I've dealt with this subject as well in the Bethel series uh, because I, he said the same thing while I was there at the church in 2020. He minimizes the Reformation, diminished in Christian's faith before that time. People did have the scriptures before that. They did have... Uh, those New Testament gospels and letters, they were highly circulated and the New Testament letters were in people's hands. Valentin just doesn't understand historical theology at all. He doesn't understand the history of the church. People did have the scriptures in their language. They could read and people could understand the triune God, for instance. Chris Valentin then says in this section that Moses and Peter probably didn't know what the Trinity was. <laughs> I mean, they have to say more, um, or at least they intimate even that Peter did not believe in the triune God. It is honestly mind-boggling. <laughs> Him even intimating that Moses didn't understand this, or that the theological concept implies that that they may not have gotten it right in their writings. Um. No one can get it all right, you know. If Moses and Peter didn't have the uh, and understand the Trinity, um, you know, can we really get it right too? Oh my goodness, <laughs> we're all just doing our best, sort of, you know, like um, trying to understand God, and and we really can't get it all right. If Moses and Peter couldn't get it right, then can I get it right? Can I understand the Trinity and the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ? If Peter and Moses couldn't get it right, then it's incredibly, this is, this is incredibly double-tongued of him. He says at the beginning of the section, I really appreciate theology. I hold to the inherent, or he meant inerrant, word of God, and I treat this book as my foundation. But you can't really understand it, you know? If, if you looked in the dictionary for the definition of double-tongued, you would find Chris's picture with this video timestamp right here. He is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. You can't really do perfect theology, but I love theology. It's completely contradictory. First, it disallows us or disallows the Bethel movement from actually critiquing Chris's uh, theology. He says, basically, you can't really get theology right. Therefore, you can't critique me theologically if we can't really get it right, you know. Second, denominations have gotten it wrong, but we get it right by just not really focusing on all that theology stuff. That's how we're better than everybody else. We don't really try to hold people to a theological standard because it's not really possible anyways, you know. If Moses and Peter couldn't understand the Trinity, then how can we? You know, 
it's just very, it's very, it's awful. It's hard to believe. Anyways, moving on to the 27 minute mark. Chris Fountain says that denominationalism creates a riskless culture, quote unquote. And because risk is the highest value and goal in their movement, you have to risk everything to be a true follower of Christ. You have to do all the signs and wonders that Jesus did. And following Jesus means being like Jesus and basically doing the things he did, being Jesus. Therefore, risk is the highest um, values of values in their culture. So two things happening here. Valentin, again, insults denominations because they don't do anything for the Lord. They don't take risk. They're not accomplishing anything for the Lord because they're not taking any risks. Uh, they're not stepping out. They're not doing anything of value for God. And then second thing is that risk is, you know, it's the most important thing for having a relationship with God. You've got to take risk. You've got to step out and have a take a risk. And this leads to risky things that they do uh, in their movement. Things like wake up Olive and trying to resurrect little girls from the dead who, who died in their sleep. They try to heal people in wheelchairs, walking up to strangers, healing them. And taking risks for God. If they see people walking around with crutches or in a wheelchair, they're doing risky things for God, going off the map, doing things basically like grave sucking, which they already dealt with in the previous episode, and things that they've done and participate in that aren't in scripture because they want to take risks. Bethel and BSSM and their graduates are a whole generation of kids going to this church and this school uh, who are going to take risks for God, even though they're not biblical risks. They're not described in the Bible, uh, things that belong to faith in Christ. They're, they're trying new stuff. They're trying stuff that doesn't belong to faith in Jesus Christ. And so those are the things that I noticed uh, there with this risk thing. Um, this is uh, insulting denominations and for not taking risks for God. And he believes that, uh, that those denominations are a riskless culture. Again, uh, this this language and inference uh, of what denominations are and what they that they're riskless cultures is, is highly inflammatory. Great uh, starters for ecumenicalism, uh, insulting every single denomination. <laughs> so, at the twenty eight minute mark, Dan fairly misrepresents the history of the church, and he says that uh, we are all disunified if we're not under the pope. Um, we all have our own schism, uh, sort of, and we only have to have true unity. Um, w w true unity would only be under papal authority. So we're all in schismic sort of movements because we're not under the Pope. This whole section is basically the oversimplification of church history and, and how the Reformation took place. And um, at the end of that section, uh, Dan Farrelly then says that all denominations are apostolic offshoots of the state church. Uh, most people who have started denominations and or movements that he describes would have absolutely opposed the label and terminology that associates them with apostles. They would not have and did not call themselves an apostolic movement. Again, any movements in history who had been ap called apostolic have usually been considered sects and cults. And, and Fairley continues on this theme saying that those people were apostolic even though they didn't have the terminology for it. He again repeats this idea. He says that uh, those people in those times didn't know the word apostle. And it's just a, it's a joke. 
He's got to really be kidding to think that Luther did not know what the term apostle was. Of course he knew the term apostle. He would have opposed anyone calling him an apostle. Um, it's the same with all the reformers. In a hundred, I am 100% certain that all the reformers would have refused the title apostle. <laughs> I think I could say that for... If, if, if you could can find a place where someone hinted at or, uh, you know, one of the reformers hinted at that they were an apostle, then hit me up, please. I want to see and I want to see a source. Don't just say it. Don't just say they did it. Get me a source. Again, at the 28 minute mark still, I think Dan Farrelly presents the idea that since we don't belong to the papal authority anymore, we're always going to have disagreements and we're never going to get it right unless we go back to papal authority. I don't know if he's actually encouraging us going back to papal authority. Um, but yeah, so he gives the idea that we don't have one single person interpreting the Bible or interpreting God for us anymore. We have many different voices, and that's the nature of denominationalism. So in this, uh, they misrepresent church history and the truth of the scriptures to make their point that denominationalism is not of God. Either you agree with the reformers and are reformed and Protestant, or you're not, and you're Catholic, and the two can't quite mix. It's just, it's just obfuscation. Um, I don't like to use that word a ton, but it's confusing the matter. It's confusing, muddling the waters. Um, yeah. So at the 31-minute mark, Dan Fairley tries to say that most denominations are basically apostolic, but they just didn't know what they that they could call themselves apostles. Again, um, he repeats the idea. It's kind of thematic in this in this one. Um, so then at the 32-minute mark, they begin this whole section. Moving on, I mean, I, he, Dan Fairley kind of talks about the apostolic movements and that all the movements of church history are apostolic. It's sort of thematic in the in the uh, this 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 uh, podcast. So I'll just move on. But 32-minute mark, they begin a whole section on what they title mentorship and fathering one another. Uh, this is obviously part of the DNA of Bethel and the NAR movement. Uh, they even admit in this section that the scripture says, call one no, fa- no one father. <laughs> Funny, quote unquote, call no one father. Call no one teacher. But then Paul says, I'm your father in the faith and stuff like this. So there's this tension. There's this balance. But this whole movement is basically part of the heavy shepherding movement. These guys are untouchable leaders who whatever they say goes, and they are fathers. Bill Johnson was not in this episode, but he's called Papa Bill. People at Bethel and the greater NAR movement definitely look to him and Chris Valton as their fathers in the movement. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, it is very leader-centric. So they say they are not hierarchical, but they are. They look to these guys. Otherwise, they wouldn't be invited to every place in the world to preach and speak. They look to them as fathers, and it's very leader-centric and prophetic-centric, prophet-centric. These guys rule with fatherly love and affection. I mean, they are super loving and super warm. Bill Johnson and Chris, they're so kind. So that actually works. It makes the fathering aspect of these movements prominent because they're great fathers. I mean, Bill and Chris are are great men. I don't doubt it. Um, I think they're very warm and compassionate in person. Um, and every, So everybody wants to be fathered by them because they're so loving and caring. 
it's an extreme amount of control that they exert uh, as a result of this um, uh, attitude and behavior that they present. They do present themselves and come off as very warm individuals. And so people want to be around that. So at the 35-minute mark, Chris Valentin talks about him hearing the audible voice of Jesus Christ only twice in his life. And this doesn't square, though, with almost every single story that he tells about these personal encounters that he's had with Jesus. Uh, the most recent one that he told appeared in an article that he wrote on his blog where he said that Jesus walked into his bathroom while he was in the bathtub and told him that he was a quote-unquote great leader. You're going, and, and, and Jesus told him, you're going to be a prophet to kings, prime ministers, and governors. So it seems like from the article that he wrote that Jesus spoke that and said that to him. So it doesn't square with him saying here in this video that Jesus has only spoken to him twice. So uh, Jesus spoke to him this time and walking into his bathroom. I, I'm, you know, I'm not making it up. Chris apparent was, apparently was in the bathtub. Jesus walked into his bathroom and spoke those words to him, spoke. So he spoke to him that time, and he spoke to him this other time, saying that we're going to get rid of denominations, moving away from denominationalism to apostleships. So Jesus, he said he's claimed by himself, and Jesus has spoken to him two times, but this one seems like a third time. So he continues about how he heard the audible voice of Jesus only two times in his life, and this was one of them where he had requested of God that he heal his mother. So that's at least three times. So Chris Valentin says Jesus has only ever spoken to him twice. One time, he, he, by his own story, says that Jesus spoke to him about denominationalism and said he was a great leader in his, while he was in the bathtub. And this is a third time. So that's not accurate. Either he spoke to him twice, or, but he has, by his own admission and the stories that he's told, Jesus has spoken to him three times audibly. Um, so this time he says he, Jesus you know, spoke to him about him healing his mother uh, when he would find out who God was. And Jesus responded to him saying, your request is granted. He, sa he asked Jesus to heal his mother, and Jesus said to him, your request is granted, quote unquote. Balotin then explained the details of healing his mother. Uh, when Chris says he only heard the audible voice of Jesus twice, it does not square with every time he tells a story about his encounters with God. Uh, these are I, I've explained that he has had three. He's explained in this video that he's had three encounters with Jesus, where Jesus spoke to him audibly. And he said Jesus has only spoken to him audibly twice. So which is it? Um does, does the tub incident count or is, you know, or was the denominationalism count or was this time one, you know, how many is it actually? And, uh, so, so he says to him, your request is granted. Your mother will be healed. That is at least three times that he's claimed Jesus spoke to him personally. Um, did Jesus speak to him these times? What he described certainly must have been Jesus speaking audibly or was it inaudibly? What actually was it then? These things, of course, they don't square with each other. He talks about all his encounters with Jesus, and it's just sensationalism. <laughs> Funny, I'll apply one of his own words to himself. He just wants to be sensational. Jesus has only spoken to me ever two times in my life. I had an encounter with Jesus where he spoke to me. It's all, 
it's all just to sensationalize the story, to make it, to give it weight. He wants to give weight to these stories by claiming these things. So they're just to add extra weight to the story. They're not true. In other words, he just adds weight by saying these things. At the very least, it is very inconsistent. Um, he's not consistent. He says that Jesus only spoke to him audibly twice in his life, but at least by his own stories, his own articles, he spoke to him three times audibly. Um, but I gather that they're not true <laughs> and that they're figments of his imagination. He's either lying or he's making these visions up. I think I'll go with the latter. He's making stuff up. They're his own imagination. At the 36-minute mark, Chris Valton begins to tell a story about how he got saved at some uh, Jesus movement, hippie-type youth group thing. He got saved. The guy who prayed over him or prayed with him invited two men over to ask, which one of these guys do you want to be your father? And I presume by that he means father in the faith. Chris Valton said he chose the one of the good-looking guys. <laughs> this guy taught him how to be a Christian, taught him how to know God, how to understand the scriptures, etc. That guy presumably fathered Chris Valton. Uh, the challenge here is that what he describes in discipleship is not fathering. This guy didn't father him. He's not a father. He's not his father. He was two or three years older than him from what Valentin says. He didn't father him. He discipled him, if, he, if that was true discipleship. And they uh, convolute and confuse discipleship and fathering. They, they mix them together, but they're different things. Fathering is not discipleship, and discipleship is not fathering. What, they, what we need is discipleship. They say you need fathering, and this whole movement is built on the fathering of one another. They don't need fathers. They need disciplers. They're confusing the two terms. So what they describe, what they mean by fathering is actually discipleship. Furthermore, fathering is a term that we should not have in Christian terminology. Jesus said we should not call each other father. That title belongs to God alone. So they convolute and confuse people in this movement who probably do need fathers, funny enough. People, these people that are swept up in this movement are low-hanging fruit, as it were. They get them, uh, sorry, people who need fathers, who don't have fathers, who are the fatherless, uh, like Chris was. He, he didn't have a father. He said his father passed away. He said at three years old, people in this movement are very needy. And they gather the low-hanging fruit because they need fathers, and they're very needy people. So they're attracted to people like Papa Bill and Chris Valentin, who are so kind and compassionate and warm. They fit those roles very well uh, as loving, dear, and emotionally connected fathers. So that's how they gather the people, the people who are needy. Chris begins to get emotional again, just like Bill Johnson. There are two peas in a pod. Valentin's voice starts to tremble, just like Johnson's. They're almost, it's really interesting, almost mirrors of each other. He starts to show uh, that my life was never the same again from this guy who, who um, fathered him. You know, This is very manipulative type of behavior of leadership that manipulates emotions into showing people how good a guy they are and how wonderful a father he would be. Uh, he was so changed through fathering. You know, and uh, Chris Valentin basically expresses, let us father you or let yourself be fathered by somebody. 
However, that's not what the Christian life is about. We don't need fathers. We need disciplers. So who will disciple us into everything that Jesus commanded and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. Go make disciples. Don't be fathers. So from 38-minute uh, mark to 41-minute mark, uh, Chris Vallotton tries in a very confusing language and terminology to explain what's wrong with the church globally. He uses the term orphans. Um, in, in his opinion, the whole church is full of orphans that are trying to be fathered, but not being fathered, actually. It's very, very confusing language, and moreover, unbiblical. There's no biblical basis for this type of ministry, this type of fathering. Even using the term fathering, we've said, is, is, stands clearly against what Jesus taught us. So in the 41-minute mark, they mention the shepherding movement. They express that they are not talking about, quote-unquote, heavy shepherding, where people tell people what to do, and, and you're only allowed permission for things and that type of stuff. That's not what they're talking about. But in principle, and from my experience of people who've come out of the NAR, that's exactly what's happening. If you came out of the NAR, put a comment in the bottom or something. Show me. Um, t tell me if I'm right on that. People are being heavy shepherded. People are completely controlled by these fathers. If you're part of a Bethel and Papa Bill is your papa, you want to always please him. You want to always do what he's telling you to do. You're not going to buck the system. Essentially, people who were at Bethel tried to call into question things and say, these things are not biblical, that, that we shouldn't be doing this or that or the other thing. And those people who, who do that basically are put out of the fellowship quietly or some not so quietly. They're uninvited, excommunicated, or kicked out of the school, kicked out of the church, and we know many, many people who have had those same experiences. They're just basically kicked out. And that uh, there's this new podcast series um, uh, called Heaven Bent, where they interview people who have come out of the movement and have basically been kicked out, kicked out of the school. Now, for some of them, for reasons of, uh, that, uh, you know, that are understandable, maybe. But uh, if you question them, if you question their practices, you basically... Uh, uh, shown the door. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, we know <clears throat> that that has happened. Um, and, uh, they're put out of fellowship. They're kicked out of the school. Uh, any questions and critique that they've expressed, uh, we know that this is what's happening there. Uh, you can't question their theological practices from in internally, the, the teaching of Bethel and it's sideways teaching and unscriptural aberrant teaching. Those people, who do that, who question that internally are shown the door. So it is uh, heavy shepherding, um, like the shepherding movement. At the 42-minute mark, at the end of the 42-minute mark, Chris Fallotton says, quote, until you find your people, you can't really find your purpose. Your purpose is actually in your people. This sounds honestly exactly like what a cult leader would say. Come to us. Your purpose will be found in the community of people that you belong to. Come to the family. You need a father. You need mothers. You need a, a family. You can't find your purpose outside of the people that you find. This is very, very shocking language. And it begs the question, what kind of stuff is, stuff is happening on the inside to control people? 
when they basically say, you have no purpose outside of this family, outside of this congregation or whatever. If someone is saying that type of thing, then run. You can't find your purpose outside of a, a group of this group of people. Run, 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 flee. This is absolutely cult leader language that you can't have purpose without us, without some certain people group or a group of uh, small, some group or some community. This is crazy. So this language is reserved for cult leaders. Um, you can find your purpose outside of Bethel or outside of some community um, because God has given you a purpose. 41-minute mark, um, the New Apostolic Reformation comes as a theme. That was a theme of, that was actually on their title, not making it up. It's their title in their theme of the podcast. Dan Fairley makes a comment that C. Peter Wagner was sort of the initiator of the movement, the NAR. He makes the comment before Chris Valentin speaks that uh, he hasn't done any research or any reading on the subject. Uh, and it's just mind-boggling that these guys would actually make a comment or have any section in their whole podcast and not have done any research into it at all. He admits he's not researched it at all. <laughs> It's right. So here I'm going to do a show <clears throat> on engineering. I'm not an engineer. I've not done any research into engineering. I don't know anything about engineering, but here we're going to do a show about engineering. <laughs> it's just, it's just astounding. Uh, there are a plethora of books by C. Peter Wagner himself describing what the NAR is in detail. Chris Valentin himself has written a recommendation quote for Che Ahn's book, Pick It Up. Hey, uh, Dan Fairley, if you're watching, here's a book you can pick up. I recommend it highly. It's about the NAR. It describes it right here. <laughs> or this one, maybe. Bill, Bill wrote a chapter in this one. You could read this one. It's about the NAR. Um, <laughs> you know, hit me up in the comments, Dan, if you have, uh, if you want to see other books, I can I can send you a list of C. Peter Wagner's books. I got a bibliography of all his books and all his writings, his article, the article I mentioned where he described the in inception of the NAR and his involvement leaving uh, uh, Talbot and going to become a leader in this movement. So, I mean, uh, there's lots of stuff out there. Uh, hit me up in the comments, Dan, and I'll, I'll give you a bibliography of all the books by C. Peter Wagner that describe this movement in detail. So uh, this, it's funny, this is, uh, they're obfuscating and denying that they belong to it, even though they absolutely know what it is, they belong to it. Chris Valentin makes a recommendation, quote, in modern day apostles, there everywhere when C. Peter Wagner was alive, if C. Peter Wagner appeared at a conference, you can bet that all these guys would appear to, at, at them too. So funny enough, um, in the in the foreword in the recommendation quotes, I'm going to read the recommendation quote by Chris Valentin to show you that he believes that this is a reformation. 
Let me read. And I quote, I have known Shayan for many years, and it has been a great honor to watch him grow his apostolic network into a powerful ministry that is impacting nations all over the world. Shay operates in his giftings to empower a generation of apostles, both in the church and in the marketplace. He has a deep wealth of experience in operating as a modern-day apostle and is a father, is a fathering language, to a generation of emerging apostles on the earth. In his book, Modern Day Apostles, Shea shares from his decades of experience to uncover the biblical, historical, and functional grounds for the existence of apostles and prophets today. He also clearly identifies the characteristics apostles need to function effectively and discusses the imperative role of apostles in today's church. Whether you have an apostolic call on your life or want to understand how this important office can activate you to bring the kingdom in power, then this is a must read. I believe this book will catalyze its readers into exceptionally great into exceptionally greater levels of reformation and revival on the earth. This is the smoking gun. They believe that there is a reformation. Chris Valentin says it. Levels of reformation on the earth. Exceptionally greater level of reformation. He says that Shea is a modern-day apostle. He says he's the father of the apostolic movement, and he says and claims that it's an office. The office of apostle is integral to understanding how the kingdom of power works. These guys believe it. They know it. And in this section, they basically obfuscate and say, they don't know if we belong to the NAR. We don't really know what it is. I didn't do any research on it. Um, That's how they start this section on the NAR. So Dan Farrelly has said he he hadn't read anything on it. And I guess Chris Ballatin will, will say the same thing. I really don't, didn't do, really read anything. I don't know about it. He's read the book. He wrote a recommendation quote for, I hope, um, or did he? <laughs> um, they believe that there's a reformation. Even Bill Johnson himself has a chapter in a book called The Reformer's Pledge right here. They're making pledges in reformation as apostles, you know. They're pledging to do certain things. Uh, and again, Dan Fairley has not read any of the books of C. Peter Wagner, who wrote a ton of books on the topic. C. Peter Wagner wrote the book Apostles Today, Biblical Government for Biblical Power. The title by itself shows that Wagner taught and believed that apostles were go- the governing authority of the church. Wagner also wrote the book Apostles and Prophets. He wrote an article in Charisma magazine on June 25th, 2014 with the question, where are the apostles and prophets? That was the title. Peter Wagner also wrote an article in Charisma News on August 24th, 2011 with the title, The New Apostolic Reformation is Not a Cult. Wagner also wrote a book called Apostles of the City, How to Mobilize Territorial Apostles for City Transformation, which is in the title by itself is one of the major theological points of this movement, that there are territorial apostles that can control large cities, as Shayan points out in his book as well. Uh, See Peter Wagner, all these books show unequivocally that he is the father of the movement he he didn't he didn't initiate it, but he but he but he coined the term and gave it a language, and then 
became the father of the movement after in the late 90s, I suspect, as when he made his turn into the movement. And then Shayan followed him. Um, he's written a plethora of books on the issue and other articles about the NAR. Uh, this one article I read recently in a, in a, um, a theological journal, his missiological uh, journey and how he became part of the NAR. So uh, they don't care. Uh, they don't care to look into it. They don't care to inform themselves with resources upon resources, evidence upon evidence. There's mounds of evidence uh, that this NAR thing is real and it's a thing and it's a large sweeping movement in the, in the, in, in the Christian movement. Uh, they're going to probably say in this section that the NAR is not really a thing. It's sort of a, a conspiracy thing. You know, that's what they always do. They sort of, they gaslight, right? So Fairley did say at the beginning that there was, a, there was some professor who claimed that Bethel was part of the NAR. What professor was that? They don't say. This is gaslighting. Again, it's just sort of like, <clears throat> basically, they create a history that is not accurate and does not reflect the authorship of C. Peter Wagner, Shea Ahn, Bill Johnson, and many other apostles. It's, you can just go look at their books, man. Just go find that. All you got to do is look. Um, they believe they're apostles and prophets in this movement. He's described it in this episode. Apostles are for today. Governmental apostles are for today. Their words here do not reflect even their own books and their own recommendation quotes that they've authored. Did you mean that, Chris? That 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 actually there's a there's a reformation happening, or is that? also um, created by the critics. The critics have said that you said that. No, you wrote that. You, it's your recommendation quote. He attributes you a recommendation quote where you said that Shayan is an apostolic leader and that it will. this book will empower a reformation in apostleship. Not my words, yours. 45-minute mark, then Dan Fairley uh, up to this point has said, we don't really know what the NAR is. I've never really studied it. I don't know if Peter were... I looked it up on Wikipedia um, to prepare for this. So he actually did do some preparation. Then Chris Fallotin goes on to explain the tenets that C. Peter Wagner laid out. And they basically go on to define and describe what the NAR is, but basically said, like, I've never really heard of it. I don't know. Any, I don't know. But apparently C. Peter Wagner did this and that and the other thing and kind of put he, he put language. So C. Peter Wagner put language to what God was doing. They basically say, I don't really know. I've never really heard anything or seen. Um, <laughs> I read, had, had someone look up a Wikipedia page for me. And if you actually looked up that Wikipedia page, funny enough, you'd find it all. It's right there. It's, it's actually, they actually follow the sources. So they, they say C. Peter Wagner put the name to it. It's, it's accurate, right? Um, <clears throat> uh, then they go on to describe exactly what C. Peter Wagner laid out and described. These guys are not being intellectually honest. They know everything. Bill Johnson has appeared on more stages with C. Peter Wagner than probably anybody else. This is truly unbelievable. They absolutely know what this movement is about. They not only know what it's about, but they are some of the main architects of the movement. I mean, Chris Valentin just said it. We're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. Jesus told him. They are the architects of this movement. 
So you'd say, well, what is the new apostolic reformation? You could look at Bethel and kind of look at the way it's lived its life and the way it's behaved and its theology for the last 20 years. And you could look at the theology, what they've taught, practiced, and you can get a picture into the NAR at large. It is what it's about. Um, They're the architects of it. At least that's what Shea Ahn says in his book. He claims that Bill Johnson is one of the main architects of this movement. Both gentlemen said they don't know anything about the NAR. Chris Valentin wrote a recommendation quote for Shea Ahn's book. And on, and on page 33, Shea Ahn claims the gift and apostle, office of apostle not only function today, but we are living in a new age that Peter Wagner has defined as the new apostolic reformation. End quote. Either Chris Ballatin did not read this quote, did not read his book, or it's hard to know what to say. <laughs> I don't. Did he read it? He gave a recommendation quote for it. So he must have read it unless he didn't read it. <laughs> and he's really honestly not being, he's, he's not being intellectually honest here to give a quote for something that you never read. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you read it, but, uh, but we know the truth. They know what this movement is about, and they're lying. Page 38 of Shea'an's book describes Bill Johnson as the glo- uh, starting the global legacy after moving to Reading in 2000 and names him as one of the United States Apostolic Network leaders. Shea continues on page 39 of his book. He gives his working definition of an apostle. An apostle is quote, a Christ-like ambassador with extraordinary authority called and sent by Jesus Christ with a specific assignment to align the church to bring heaven's culture to earth and fulfill the mandate to disciple nations. I don't know how much more evidence we need. Um, This book is full of allusions and references to a reformation to Bill Johnson and that he belongs to the movement. Bill Johnson wrote the foreword of the book. Chris Felton wrote a recommendation quote. They absolutely know what they teach. They are purposely misleading people to say they're not really part or sort of part of the NAR. We, we don't really know what it is. They cannot say they don't know what it is anymore. It's not true. At the 45-minute mark, then Chris Valentin mischaracterizes the critique again. He mischaracterizes the critique of people saying uh, that people don't like him. The critics of this movement don't dislike him. That's not accurate. We think they're false teachers. They're teaching false doctrine. They're not teaching correct Orthodox Christian doctrine. That's why we speak out. We don't dislike them personally. I don't even know them personally. Again, a mischaracterization. This is a mischaracterization. This is a straw man argument. These critics are so mean. They just don't like us. Why don't they like us? We're such kind. And look how emotional we get. We're so kind and warm. And we're such good papas and fathers and and blah, 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 and stuff like this. Really? If someone were there to be in person to correct them, we could say, you know what? No, 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 no. (laughs) You're not speaking the truth here. We don't dislike you. We're criticizing your teaching. We're critiquing your teaching and theology. We are critiquing the movement that you're a part of because you teach the scriptures falsely and you're a false teacher and a false prophet. We don't dislike you. 
I think you're probably a wonderful guy, actually. If Chris, if you're watching, if you happen to watch this, I think they're probably wonderful people. They sound great. Bill Johnson, I, I believe he's a he's a granddad. He's a he's a great guy, but he's a false teacher. Again, this is a mischaracterization, mischaracterization, and setting up a straw man argument. Look, they just don't like us, you know, and we can knock that straw man down really easily because we're such likable people. This is not the critique against them. We're not critiquing them as people. We don't dislike them. Um, it's it, it's a false narrative, right? And make he's making stuff up. And so, um, yeah, that's that's how this that's how these guys do it. They set up this this uh, false uh, narrative, this false critique. We don't critique them as people. I probably would like the guy actually if I knew him. I don't know him, but I'd probably if I got down to know him and just in everyday life, I'd probably like him. But he's a false teacher, and he's part of the movement. They're part of the NAR. They're not being honest, and, and so. I think I've given enough evidence to show that they're part and parcel in this movement. So um, that's it for this episode. This was uh, Rediscovering Bethel, Critique of Rediscovering Bethel's episode number four with Chris Vallotton and uh, Dan Fairley. And there, the title of that episode was The Church, Ministry, and the New Apostolic Reformation. So uh, hope you enjoyed this. If you did, give it a like, give it a thumbs up pass it on if you can. And uh, thanks for listening to this episode of Churchpreneur's Podcast. You can find out more information at my website at richardpmore.net. And I also blog at richardpmore.blogspot.com. You're welcome to follow me on Twitter if you haven't left that platform already or been canceled. Um, my Twitter handle is at richardpmore23. You can also email us at churchpreneurs at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas for a podcast or any concerns or comments, questions, please reach out on one of those platforms. God bless you. Until next time, take care.